Welcome to What Won't You Say, a woman-centered podcast. I'm your host, Sonia Mastic. Stick around for the season to be inspired by amazing women who bravely delve into the stories of their lives, giving hope and inspiration to others. Together, we will explore such a wide array of topics that you will be asking yourself, what won't you say? So at the last episode, you're at the rheumatologist and you're sitting, heart rate is 165, and he says, you need to go to the ER right away. We're back with Jackie Zimmerman. That's where we left with the last episode. Where does we where do we go from here, Jackie? Well, luckily, I was there with my mom because again, I couldn't take care of my grown ass self at this time. And she gets in the car and we start driving to the closest hospital, which is close to where they live, which is happens to be the the hospital that my dad also went to frequently. My dad was a heart patient and had um a really interesting relationship with his cardiologist. So uh, when my dad had his first heart attack, the cardiologist he sort of met in the hospital was like brand new, fresh faced, like Mm. here to solve your problems. Right. And he was the only guy who really did dive in to figure out what was actually going on with my dad, like what caused it. Cause there was some weird stuff in there. So they became buds. Right. And so more now, like, I don't know, 20 years later, they're still buds. They have each other's cell phones. They talk about cars, right? Like they're friends. It's cool. it's weird. Um, but that, you know, dad makes friends with everybody. So yeah. this is now after hours because the appointment was late in the day, right? So this is probably like six, seven o'clock at night. We're rushing to the ER. I don't know why. I just know that I have the sitting heart rate of a grown man exercising is what he told me. Mm-hmm. And so I get there. And what I don't know is that my dad calls Dr. K, <laughs> wakes him up because he had a late night shift or something. I don't remember the timing. I just know like time was weird. Wakes him up and says, you have to get to the do- the hospital right now because my kid's there. My kid who is 24 years old, right? Still, still his baby. And so he does. Dr. K shows the fuck up. And, and here's what I remember from that. Because this is another one of those moments where like, there was a lot of chaos. There was probably some pain meds, but it's like um some montage, like out of Grey's Anatomy, right? Like it's just sort of people in and out, whatever. I'm in an ER, very small ER room. They bring in a portable x-ray machine, which I'd never seen before. And they start literally ripping my clothes off of me. And I'm very awake right now. So I'm kind and I'm I'm trying to be modest, which like when you're dying, I guess modesty is supposed to go out the window, but I was far too aware to know Mm. that so I'm trying to like just cover up my boobs a little bit Mm. just because you know it's uncomfortable and they just keep like ripping it right open so I feel immediately not like a person like a you know a problem feel also like thinking I'm dying but also like still self-conscious at the same time right like which you know that's I don't want to die with my boobs out (laughs) exactly right like couldn't you at least like put a bandeau across or something (laughs) um so they start doing all this testing and they're like doing all these scans and we've got ultrasounds and we've got like literally just like they're doing everything because I'm in so much pain. I still have this pain between my shoulder blades that we now know after all those scans is actually been caused by my heart. And that's probably also why no one took my back pain fucking seriously Mm. in the previous hospitalization. When I went back and looked at that, those, the paperwork, they saw it. Mm. They saw the pericardiac effusion in that paperwork and sent me home anyway. Wow. So what that actually is, what is this problem? It's where the sac around your heart collects too much fluid and grows. 
And so it starts to move everything around because there's not a lot of space in there. So the pain was from the fluid pushing up against everything else in my chest cavity. So what typically happens when this happens and you find it early and you treat it early is the like the, the easy way, which is essentially like they stab a needle in your chest and they suck out the fluid and then you're like, done, you're good mm. to go. Well, guess what? It was way too late for that. Yeah. So the next day they, I mean, it was, it wasn't like emergency, like you're going to die now, but it was, we are putting you on the surgery docket for tomorrow morning. And I had an open surgery where they cut into my chest. They cut a hole in the pericardium, which is the sac around your heart. And they drained the fluid and that hole is still there. And the, what they told me, cause I was like, well, how do we know this won't happen again? Like what do we like? Because also at this time, like I, I spoiler alerted in the last episode, I didn't know what caused this. No one knew what caused this. This was just like a surprise out of the blue. You have this thing and it's really bad and we don't know where it came from. Um, so I was like, well, what happens if it happens again? Like, what, what, like, am I like, am I a heart patient? Am I on alert? Yeah. Like what happens? And they were like, well, don't worry, because now that you have what's called a pericardiac window, which is the hole in the pericardium, that fluid will just drain right into your lungs. What? So don't worry about fluid draining into your lungs. Yep. Okay. Cause good. you know, cause this won't happen again, but that will happen. And so, you know, that buys you more time. And I was like, cool. All right. Well, I feel good about this. Definitely. And are you basically like on that floor? You gotta be easily one of the youngest people there, like in this, you know, ward. So after I get, I have the surgery and I get on the floor, I'm in the cardiac ICU and I am the youngest patient there by 50 years, easily. Like I have, I have a private room, which was very nice of them. Mm -hmm. um, it is definitely, I, now that I've been in so many hospital rooms, it's definitely the kind of room that's meant for somebody who is not going to get out of their bed. Yeah. Um, there are certain ways rooms are set up when there's like, this person might go somewhere and this person is never going to go somewhere. And this was a, this person is never going to go somewhere kind of bed. Ugh. And so I'm there. And I'm trying to be me, right? I'm a pretty peppy, sassy person, but like this blows. <laughs> and so one of my one of my best friends throughout my whole life at that point came to visit me because I could have visitors. And this is one of the like, again, there's these certain moments that are just seared into your brain, regardless of the meds and regardless of the trauma, you just see it so clearly. And this is one of those moments where she came to visit and we're talking and all of a sudden I'm feeling like, an increasingly severe pain in my chest, my front chest now, mm. like this is bad. Like, and, and if you've ever been in pain like this, particularly in the hospital, I think you go through stages where you're like, this hurts, this hurts. And you're like, oh, this is getting worse. This is getting really bad. But you're also like, I'm not going to like yell out because I'm in a hospital, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be that person that's like yelping yeah. in pain because other assholes like me will judge you for it. Because, you know, that's also who I was at the time. And, and it's not like house where like suddenly a, a team right. is going to come and, you know, <laughs> They're like, solve oh, all you your problems. Yeah. <laughs> no. So you're just like yelling into the nothing. Right. Yeah. So my mom also happens to be there. My friend is there and I am now beyond keeping it cool. I'm yeah. yelling. I am yeah. like, I, I think I'm dying. Like, yeah. I'm like, why, where is this coming from? Why? Like it's, it's all in like the incision area in the front of my chest. Cause I have about like a four inch incision, like just below like the center of my boobs, basically, mm -hmm. you know, like where your heart is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've, I've heard, I've heard rumors. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and so my mom, I remember my mom leaving to go to the nurse's stand, which I could see from my room and it was empty. And I remember her telling the story later on that she went out there and looked around and there was no one to be seen, no one anywhere. And so she turns into like bitchy, mean ass mama bear mode. And I, she like, she went for looking for heads to smash. Like, I know this, Yeah. but my friend stayed with me and I will never forget this. I looked up at her and I know she was trying to keep it together, but she was scared. She yeah. was so scared. Like she was panicked. Like she saw me doing what I was doing and she was freaked out. And like, this is not to say that like when you're with somebody who's sick, you can't have a human reaction, but like, I knew how bad it was because I saw it on her face. Yeah. And so what I remember is Dr. K came running in. I don't know where he came from, but he came running in. Like Batman. Yeah. And literally, <laughs> it's like there was a light somewhere and it was just like, um, and so I'm laying on the bed flat and he comes in and he looks at like he looks where the bandages are on my chest and I I this man is a saint so I don't blame him for this but he took the bandages and just like ripped them off right in a fury right that's yeah. you know what's wrong and I will never forget this I sat up chest first like I it was like the like an exorcism like yeah. the pain was so strong I came up like yeah. it was unreal and the worst part of all of it was he saw nothing there was no reason for what happened. There was no explaining it, no cause, no wow. results, nothing. But I was like, I'm, I'm dying. Like this is going to be it. I'm dying yeah. right now. Nothing, nothing at all. And so like, I get why sometimes doctors think people fake shit, but I'm also like, just as baffled as you are. I don't want to be doing this either. Like, right. I don't want to be the screaming crazy patient in the hospital. I definitely don't want to be, I want to be quiet and get the fuck out of here. So like, I don't So what do they do? He takes advantage of, do they like run tests and look? He's and... like, you know, looking and, you know, like assessing the incision for infection or there were tubes coming out of my chest, mm. like drainage tubes, two really big tubes looking at the tubes, looking at like the small sutures holding the tubes to my skin, just like investigating everything mm. and saw nothing. Right. So then they call in the thoracic, the thoracic surgeon who came in and he also was like, I see nothing. Right. Like I don't, and I don't so know. you're still in pain right now while they're all looking. So they're yeah. Cause their focus was like, if she's dying, let's make sure she's not dying first. Right. So then they come along. I'm sure they give me like a slew of pain meds and like it goes away. But so I don't like in hindsight, I still don't know. Was that like negligence on someone of timing of pain meds? Was that actually something going wrong just under the surface that they couldn't see? You know, like I have no idea what that was, but I know that it was fucking terrible because I remember yeah. every second of it, you know? So by that point, I had made an impression on the nurses there. Not a bad one. I was still mm -hmm. young enough to where they were like sad for me. Mm -hmm. So apparently this like huge room opened up on the floor and they saved it for me, which I appreciated. And this is without a doubt, the biggest hospital room I've ever seen in my entire life. It is like the Taj Mahal hospital room. It has, it's, it's a single, it has a gigantic bathroom. There's room for couches, mm -hmm. multiple couches in mm -hmm. there. It is dope. It's like the best hospital room I've ever seen in my life. And the first night I stayed in there, my boyfriend came and slept on the floor of that hospital room. And, I, and so I'm thinking, what a guy. Right. What a guy. Look what he did. He's here for me. 
what a guy, right? So there are moments where he does the thing you're supposed to do. He doesn't go above and beyond, mm-hmm. but just enough, again, for me to be like, it's okay. This is this is fine. You know, like I'm not concerned at this point. Again, there are red flags that I'm fully ignoring, mm-hmm. but I am convincing myself because I have a lot of other stuff that happens to be going on at this time that it's fine. Like I'm still working full time. I'm trying to work full time during what? all of this. Wow. Yeah, I have a I have a full time job during all of this. What are you doing um, for work at the time? I am a brand manager for a local coffee franchise at mm. this time, and I'm a one man, one woman corporate office. I do it all. It's just me there. So I'm their brand wow. manager, but I literally do everything else. That's corporate-y kind of stuff. Um, cause they have like three or four locations at this time. Okay. So, um, I understand that when I'm not there, stuff is not getting done, mm-hmm. but I also am like trying to stay alive. So I'm yeah. not terribly, terribly concerned about what's going on here. So yeah, that was my first surgery that was related to colitis because through my own research i discovered that this is the side effect of taking that very safe intro level drug and what was the drug it's called azacol okay and that said i don't want that to scare people away from taking it right it is a very safe drug there are many different drugs in this class they're all very safe um you know just luck sometimes sometimes you really got it you know and again you said the statistics were something like 1% of people. literally like 1%. Yeah. Um, and again, if I had gotten discharged from the hospital and they had told me about this, we probably could have made progress on it before it was needing emergency surgery bad. Right. I definitely spent some time thinking about suing the hospital after that. But that when was you're, my next question for sure. When you're thinking you're still going to, you're not, I'm not out of, I'm, I'm getting worse. Like right. I'm not getting any better. I'm getting worse. Like suing anybody is not on the radar at this yeah. point, you know? Um, and then by the time, you know, fast forward, spoiler alert, years down the road when everything's better, you want to be done with it. You're over yeah. it. You don't want to relive it, you know? So it, nothing ever happened. I did think very strongly about writing a very strongly worded letter to them, but that also felt like a waste of my time because it probably wouldn't even get in front of the doctor. So yeah. So here you are now, you, you have that strange chest pain, nothing's there. You obviously end up getting released after you're in the Taj Mahal room and your boyfriend's Mm -hmm. sleeping on the floor. What's next? So here is where we are September-ish of 2009 when the heart surgery happens. And I am officially sicker than ever. I'm immediately taken off of that medication we start looking at other options for medication because the colitis is also getting worse. I am mm. getting sicker on multiple levels. And, um, and I, not to on... mention, I also want to say you still have MS. Yes. It didn't magically go away. So you have, you have no. the things with MS you're dealing with colitis and now a heart surgery. And, and working. So I'm like, I got to get back to work. I have to work again. Right. Cause you know, every time I'm in the hospital for a week, that's a week I'm not at work. Or every time I have to leave work to go to the ER, I'm not getting paid, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's it's a salary job, but it, my salary was very low. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like it didn't really matter because my salary was very, very low. Um, it was my, my second job out of college. So mm-hmm. in 2000 and 
nine. So, you know, different world, different times, lots of less money. Um, I think I was making like $32,000 a year or something, which mm-hmm. as a single person at the time wasn't horrible, Mm-mm. but it wasn't like I can afford to take lots of time off of work. Cause at that point I had ran out of PTO. I was taking unpaid time off work. Mm-hmm. Um, so colitis is out of control. Everything is really awful. I'm on 60 milligrams of steroids a day, which is a very high dose for steroids daily. Um, and we start testing out other medications. Um, there are other classes of medications to take the next level of almost everything that was available at that time. As a sidebar, the field of medications that are available to people now is so much bigger. It's so much greater. There are so many more options. It's awesome. It's truly amazing to see how far it's come just from the time when I was diagnosed to now, like it's a whole different ball game now. Um, but at that time, the next plan was to go on 6MP and Imuran, um, which are classes of biologics for the most part, and they are injectables. And as I learned with MS, I am not a fan of injectables, but I did it because I was like, I, I will try anything at this point. Mm-hmm. At this point, this is when I start trying all the shit, right? I right. cut dairy, I cut sugar, I cut this, I cut that, I cut cut gluten. I saw a shaman. I literally was like, I will do anything if you can make me feel better. Um, None of it did. And I continued to get worse. And as you're continuing to get worse, the the next set of drugs um, is like the big boy biologics. So we're talking um, like Remicade is a big one for Crohn's um, in this time. And um, at this time, we believed and I don't even know if this is the general consensus in the medical community now, but at that time they believed that taking other biologics would trigger MS attacks. So that, that entire, the entire class of the big boy drugs, the top level, the top shelf, the biggest guns we got was off limits. Oh my gosh. Couldn't take any of them, which basically put me facing surgery significantly sooner than a lot of other people would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ran out of options in, in less than six months, I ran out of every medication option there was on the market. And at that time I knew surgery was a possibility, but I was just like, la, 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 la. I'm not, mm -mm, no, it's Mm -hmm. not. And the number one reason I refuse to acknowledge it is because of my own and very common societal misconceptions about what an ostomy is and what it means to have one. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was like, there's, I mean, I read early blog posts of me talking about this and it's candidly very shameful. I leave it up on the internet, one for myself as a reminder and two, because I want people to see what uneducated perspectives look like and how they can be changed. Mm -hmm. So I leave them there. The same reason I leave all my typos in those early ones, because like it was a reflection of who I was at the time. And I knew it was coming. I refused to admit that it was coming, but I knew it was coming. And so I, it it uh, being surgery. Yes. And uh, at the time, because the other thing that like, let's talk about surgery for a minute. Surgery for ulcerative colitis is not just like wham, bam, have a surgery. It's typically two or three separate surgeries over the course of months and months and months where they remove your large intestine and your rectum. They give you an ostomy over time. And then they create what's called a J pouch, which is an internal pouch made out of your small intestine. 
it acts as a new reservoir to hold your poop the same way your rectum does. And then you can go to the bathroom like a healthy colon person would. Um, so to get to the end where you get a J pouch, you have to have an ostomy in the middle. There's basically, there are some surgeons who will do them in a one step. And I think anybody who does that is fucking bananas and absolutely should lose their medical license because it's not a good idea. This is my number one warning. If this is you, don't do it. Just don't do it. Anyway, <laughs> so I know I'm facing multiple major surgeries, losing organs, whole organs. And the thing that makes me have the biggest pause is an ostomy. I'm not worried about the other things. I just don't want an ostomy. I think that's the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to me. And I think I've even said that online quite a few times. Like, I can't fathom what that feels like, what it looks like, how nobody will be disgusted by me. And I'm saying all these awful, horrible things out loud because that is what most people think about when they think about an ostomy. And explain and, to, to some of the listeners who don't know me yeah, you. Yeah, yes. what it is, yeah. So an ostomy is where they take part of either, rewinding for, there are three kinds of ostomies. There's a colostomy, an ileostomy, and a urostomy. The first two have to do with your intestines. A colostomy is with your large intestine, your colon. The second one is an ileostomy, which has to do with your small intestines. And the third one, a urostomy, is for your bladder. So it's unrelated, but it's also an ostomy just for the purpose of conversation. So what they do is they take your small intestine. Well, for me, they were going to take my small intestine and um, route it to my abdomen where an external bag would collect stool and waste. Um, there's so much more information I want to give about ostomies, but like for what we're doing, mm -hmm. that is, that's yeah. all we need. Yeah. Um, and so it's, you know, all the bad things that you could say about it. It's a shit bag. It smells. It's this. It's that. It's ugly. I don't want to see it. It's not sexy. Nobody's ever going to want to love me. My boyfriend's never going to want to have sex with me. All of the things that you think when you are raised in a very ableist world that is uneducated, right? So I decide if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go to the best. Here's where my privilege kicks in. I decide I'm going to go to the best surgeon in the country. And there were two top places. There was Mayo and there's Cleveland Clinic. And I decided to go to Cleveland Clinic uh, literally because it's easier to drive there. So um, it's about a four hour drive. So my mom and I drive down there and we just have a consult because this is what they're telling me I need. And I am here to tell them wrong. <laughs> I'm here to say, I know better than you do. And this is not going to happen. So I meet the surgeon. I meet the guy, the head guy, the guy's like the best guy in the world. Literally this guy performs thousands of J pouches a year. He is the man. Okay. And that I'm excited about. I'm excited to know somebody who is very well versed because you know, your local GIs, are not surgeons, first and foremost. And second of all, even your local surgeons don't get the quantity that you would get at a specialty clinic. It's just the nature of the yeah. game. So I go talk to this guy. He's got a great personality. We're vibing. And I'm I'm still very clearly like, I don't want to do this. And now looking back, I think about how many people have been in my position and how many people have the like, absolutely not, I don't want to do this attitude and how often surgeons are kind of like trying to re- position that or rewrite that mm -hmm. narrative for other people. Um, so that part probably really sucks, honestly, because I have also tried to do that for other patients and getting past that stigma is so fucking hard. Like it's really hard. So he tells me blatantly, you don't have to have this surgery now. You can choose not to have it. 
but you're probably going to be airlifted in when your colon explodes. So it's really your choice. Oh, I mean, he's at least uh, being very direct. Yeah. I mean, and, and that it worked because I was like, well, fuck me. I didn't really think about it that way. Right. It, it, it was not a, if it was when, and I didn't realize that part. There was no, if there was a, when, and you can, he was like, you can control it by scheduling a surgery date or you can leave it to chance and you will get airlifted here. Wow. If, if you survive. Yes. Yeah. And so it was a long four hour ride home with my mom. It was mostly quiet because I didn't want to talk about it. And I thought about it and I thought about it. And I think like a day later, I called and scheduled my first surgery because because the idea of not having control of what was about, I already felt like I didn't have control. This was the smallest bit of control that I could have. So that's what I did. Awesome. All right. We're going to leave it there. Uh, So stay tuned for the next episode where we actually go into the surgery. And uh, again, thank you again for listening. Thank you, Jackie, for sharing your story. And we'll see you all, I guess, or you'll hear us in the next one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to What Won't She Say? You can find us at whatwontshesay.com, on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else that you like to find your podcast. 